0: Well, on to tonight and Evan and Osi Thomas. Certainly no ignorance there and no danger planned. I have been an admirer and a friend of Evan Thomas for over 65 years, for 40 years in the case of his wonderful partner and wife, Osi. But there is another member of the Athenaeum who is far more qualified than I to introduce them to you. In front of me is one of their impressive two daughters, Louisa Thomas. Louisa is a member of the Athenaeum and a best-selling author in her own right. She joined us here a few years ago to present her biography of First Lady Louisa Adams, the spouse of John Quincy Adams. Her writing appears in the New York Times, Vogue, The Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, The Paris Review, and many other places. Her most recent work, which she wrote with her husband, John Urschel, is the New York Times bestseller, Mind and Matter. Please join me in welcoming Louisa.
1: Thank you so much for that introduction. Um, It's an honor to be introducing Evan and O.C. Thomas, who will be speaking to you about FIRST, their biography of Sandra Day O'Connor. And it's a particular pleasure for me to be here at the Athenaeum um, because, as Art mentioned, I am a member and because, also, as I mentioned, I wrote a biography of John Quincy Adams' wife, Louisa Catherine Adams, who um, didn't much like this place um, where John Quincy spent so much of his time um, during its early years in the early 19th century. Um, he actually left many of his books here. Um, she had a particular um, grudge against them because sometimes it seemed like maybe he loved them a little bit more than, or at least paid more attention to them than he paid attention to her. Sandra Day O'Connor actually understood something about the obstacles that women faced even a century and a half after Louisa lived. And she also knew the costs of of living in in the public eye and what it exacted on a family. But she could also see it from the other side, the pull of public service, the nobility of civic life, the awesome responsibility granted to those who uphold the rule of law. She was a woman from the West, but she had some of those wonderful Ademsian traits, um, grace, wisdom, humor, a respect for tradition, and also a willingness to cut against the grain, and finally, an appreciation for how men and women really live, as well as how they wish to. My parents, Evan and Osi, spent three years immersing themselves in her life. My father is an accomplished journalist and biographer, and my mother is a talented lawyer, And together, they spent countless hours reading her letters and papers and cases and briefs and talking to the people who knew her best and finally poring over the written pages, which were written by my father and edited and guided by my mother. I didn't know much about O'Connor before they began, but I was lucky enough to be privy to this process and to see her life emerge in full. I am really proud of my parents. And I am really honored and delighted to introduce them to you today. First is a remarkable achievement about a remarkable woman written by two remarkable people.
2: Louisa is sneaking out because she has a, a small baby at home. So. <laughs> bye, uh, honey.
3: Bye, Louisa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's wonderful to be here, uh, to come back here. I've given a couple of talks before, but so much better to be here with Osi and with Louisa and my old friend Art. Uh, we, we sailed together and, and competed against each other and went to school together and have been friends for many, many years. Uh also, he's going to talk a little bit uh, about Sandra, and we're just going to go back and forth and talk for a half hour or so, and then we'll take your questions.
2: When Ronald Reagan nominated Sandra Day O'Connor as uh, to Associate Justice of the Supreme Court in July 1981, it was electrifying for the country. This was the first time judicial uh, confirmation hearings for the, the Supreme Court were televised, And so around the world, tens of millions of people watched a uh, a hit there to for a non unknown uh, woman from a middle level court in Arizona, just spring to celebrity and and spring to life before them. She was uh, incredibly well prepared. She was so successful in her confirmation hearings that letters poured in. 60,000 of them um, that were fan letters, basically. Her picture was all over the magazines, on the cover of Time and uh, Saturday evening Post, Life. She was breaking news on all the television uh, major networks. And there were more requests for press passes to her confirmation hearings than to the Watergate hearings uh, much later. So the Senate confirmed her, 99 to nothing. And um, as those you can see, days. those are the days she had.
3: <laughs> so what, what was it like on the court for her? It was cold. Uh, marble. It's a cold place, marble. And she's an Arizona girl. She would, she would stand out in the interior courtyards and turn her face up to the sun just for the warmth. The other justices, the, the eight men, weren't that glad to see her. Uh, the court had been a male place for two centuries. Uh, and uh, she went to her first lunch, and only half the justices showed up. Only four of the justices showed up. Uh, they, at her first oral argument, she was anxious. Uh, the, uh, she knew everybody was watching. And uh, uh, she waited about a half an hour and started to ask her first question, and the male lawyer arguing before her talked over her. Uh, she wrote in her diary that night, I feel put down. But you know she was not the kind of person who stayed uh, put down for long. Uh, she just had but she had to cope. she had to she had to deal with her her there's a wonderful tradition in the Supreme Court that before they go into their conference together, their secret conference, they all shake hands and uh, each justice shakes the hand of every other justice. Justice, Byron White, Wizzer White, uh, all pro halfback, shook Justice O'Connor's hand and crushed it. She went into her first conference crying. She, she put a tear streaming, squirting, it, she, the word she used was squirting out of her eyes. Uh, and, you know, it was just a di- different place that these guys were used to. They, the, the duties of a junior justice, the most junior justice, are to take notes and get coffee so the other justices said, oh, we're really going to do this? Ask her to get coffee? And they said, well, tradition is tradition. We're going to do this. But they didn't. Uh,
2: so, uh, so she had a little bit of a rocky start, but uh, Lewis Powell liked to write letters to his family. He did it frequently. And three weeks into her tenure, he wrote them that uh, she is uh, nothing short of brilliant she is going to make her mark on this place. I think he was a little relieved. And he became her friend and gave her one of his secretaries to help organize her chambers. Justice Powell, Lewis Powell. Justice Berger, the chief justice at the time, had known her and, and, and had recommended her for the court. And he thought that he could really guide her and that she would follow his lead. Well, he soon learned that she was quite independent minded. At first, uh, as her investiture, he walks her down the stairs of the Supreme Court. The reporters are lined up, their cameras are flashing. He stops, he opens his arm and he says, you've never seen me with a better looking justice. So uh, (laughs) she's smiling. And um, then about three months, actually two months after the beginning of the term, he sends her an academic study with a note that says, I think you'll be interested in this. And it is uh, from two Wharton professors. It's He's gotten it from Walter Menninger, famous psychiatrist. And it is about how a, a single woman joining an established group of men who have their their um, routines down, who are leaders, and who... Uh, are uncomfortable with the arrival of this female, uh, should act. And the paper says, uh, the men are going to be undermined by your very presence and they're going to feel uh, it'll affect their sense of accomplishment and their sense of purpose unless they discuss among themselves how they're gonna cope with you, but better for you just to be passive. And, and so she doesn't write him back and say, thank you. She just files this away, and, and we find it uh, many decades later in her papers. And I might mention that one of the wonderful reasons um, that we just so enjoyed this book was we had complete access to all her papers and, um, at the Library of Congress and at the Supreme Court and all her letters and to, uh, we spoke to 94 of her clerks, so we had pretty premier uh, chance to really get to know her.
3: So she uh, grew up on a ranch called the Lazy Bee in the southeast corner of Arizona, 160,000 acres. It took a man on a horseback a full day just to ride across it. Uh, they called it, it was our own separate world. It was a world apart. It was just basically Mr. Day and Mrs. Day and a bunch of cowboys and Sandra for the first uh, 10 years until she had a couple of siblings. Uh, Very crude place. Uh, No running water, uh, no electricity at first. Uh, One bath a week for Mrs. Day, and then the cowboys got it after she was done. Uh, uh, But for her, it was a wondrous place. Uh, She learned how to... uh, Fire a rifle before she was ten, and to drive a tractor when she was about eight years old, and had to, you know, rope a cow and brand a brand a brand a calf. Uh, and her father was a magnificent figure, Mr. Day, and he taught her self-reliance. She liked to tell this story to her law clerks. She would say that when she was fifteen years old, her job was to make lunch for the roundup, for the for cowboys doing the roundup miles across the prairie. And she got up at 5 a.m., and she cooked the roast, and she cooked the cake, and she loaded the truck, and on her way out, she had a flat tire. And she's a slight girl, and it took her an hour to change the tire because she had to jump up and down on the jack. She finally gets there an hour late, and her father looks up at her and says, you're late. And she said, well, Dad, I had to change a tire. And he said, next time, leave earlier. So she liked to tell that story to her clerks, and the message was pretty clear. No excuses. No excuses. You know, you got to do your job no matter what. So he, she liked to talk about him, and yes, he did have a big impact. But to me, and to O.C., I think actually her mother had a greater impact. She was a very elegant woman living out on this dusty ranch. She wore always wore dresses. Uh, she wore hose and, and fancy shoes. She subscribed to Vogue. She was a great cook. And... Uh, Sandra was there night after night with the two of them, and Mr. Day was a strong personality. He could be rude, and after a couple of drinks in the evening, he could be a bully. And he bullied Mrs. Day. But she, you know, she wasn't passive, she wasn't submissive, but she also didn't get into stupid fights with him. She knew when to picker fights and when to stand up to them, and when to just finesse them and walk away from dumb fights. That was an incredibly important lesson to Sandra Day O'Connor because she spent a lifetime dealing with obnoxious males. <laughs> and she had a lot of good uh, practice just from her dad.
2: When she's 16 years old, she goes to Stanford University, and she uh, she is... Um, Thrilled to be there, and she writes home a uh, few weeks into the term. It is the utopia I always dreamed of. It's the Saturday night after she arrives, um, now this is this is 1946. There are veterans um, swelling the campus all over the country. And uh, one of her friends in, in her women's dorm says it was veterans walking around. It was it was handsome men in bomber jackets everywhere, smiling men in bomber jackets. So they have a dance called the Jolly Up on Saturday night, and Sandra, who's grown up on a ranch, uh, isn't quite you know uh, hasn't gone to cotillion, and she loves to dance, and she doesn't wait for one of these handsome men to come to ask her to dance she goes up to one and she asks him to dance and out they go on the dance floor he is thrilled and he becomes her first boyfriend out at uh, Stanford
3: we 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 met him he's he's was still in love he
2: he did he gave us his photographs of her from from back in 1947 and 8 Western Civ. Uh, Western
3: Civ. Uh, when she wasn't dancing, she was enjoying a course called Western Civilization. They don't teach this at Stanford anymore. Uh, it's considered to be too patriarchal and hegemonic and all that. Uh, but for her, it was a, it was a gift. Uh, we Because we had her papers, I read, we read her final examination in Western Civ. She's a 17-year-old girl. It is a brilliant exegesis on the founders, on Madison, and Jefferson and the rule of law, and it had a huge impact. You can see her, 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 the lights going on for her as a, as a young girl taking Western Civ.
2: She, uh, in her fourth year, she goes to Stanford Law School. At Stanford, you could back then um, do your fourth year undergraduate as a law student if you have a certain grade point average, and pass a test. So a third of the incoming law school class are actually fourth year undergraduates. And she's one of them. But there are only five women in a class of 150. And she stands out. She, um, has all, she's very disciplined, even then. And her dad has given her a 1951 Plymouth car. And she doesn't want to drive around looking for a parking space, so she goes out and gets some paint and paints herself a reserved parking space, and puts her name on it, and now she knows where to park her car and get to school. She is a very good student, she is law review, and one of her law review um, buddies is uh, Bill Rehnquist, who is also in her class. And um, they uh, start dating in April of uh, their first year, So we um, uh, were able to discern uh, that there were, she was proposed to at least four times, that we could tell, and she was engaged at least twice. And uh, finally married John O'Connor, who was a year behind her in law school and also on law review. And we knew that they had a great marriage and we wondered where the love letters were. They're not in the Library of Congress and uh, we haven't seen them, so we asked the family, where are the love letters? And um, back at the Supreme Court, her secretary takes her, us to a basement storeroom that the justices have. They have individual storerooms, and they, she slides open the door and there's a shelf and, it's, and she has, there's a box, a banker's box, correspondence, and we say, can we see that? And they say, well, sure. And in there are wonderful love letters from John O'Connor to Sandra and back and forth. And there are 14 love letters from Bill Rehnquist. <laughs> so it's this like mother load. And we are, um, feel very excited as rep- reporting this book. And they I gave out a Yelp when I. <laughs> yes, well, Evan hasn't quite discussed Close that by letter seven, he says, uh, Sandy, will you marry me this summer? It's 1952. And that's when Evan gave out the Yelp <laughs> and they had never told anyone. They didn't tell their two families who had been pretty good friends over the years, not their children, not their friends and certainly not their fellow justices. Um, Bill Rehnquist, his third year, had had gone to clerk for Justice Jackson on the Supreme Court in January, and uh, he had dated her first year between April and December, and they had broken up. But they'd remained friends and moot court partners. And but he writes her. He's lonely in Washington. He remembers. He blames himself for breaking up. He remembers the picnics at Half Moon Bay, and um, he wants to start making plans for the summer. Will you come to Wisconsin? Will you take the bar with me in New Mexico? Will you meet me in Yosemite? And she strings him along because John O'Connor, who she's in love with, hasn't popped the question. So so in any event, um, come July, she sends Bill Rehnquist a special delivery letter. Do you remember what special delivery letters were? And, um, and breaks up with him gently And uh, they go on to be uh, quite good friends. Back on the court, they know the other justices know they went to the movies a few times, and uh, Harry Blackman, who sits next to Rehnquist on the bench the first day that Sandra's on the bench, leans over to Rehnquist and whispers, No fooling around.
3: (laughs) So while all this uh, courtship is going on, uh, she's trying to get a job. Uh, She is uh, on Law Review, uh, Order of the Coif, top 10% of her class. She applies to 40 uh, law firms in uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco and gets one interview at Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher, a law firm, and they ask her, how well do you type? And she says, so-so. She can't even get a job as a legal secretary. Uh, Now... I mentioned the firm was Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher. Uh, Flash forward 30 years, and the Attorney General of the United States is William French Smith, a former Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher lawyer, and he is now calling Judge O'Connor of the Arizona Court of Appeals, asking her if she will come to Washington to interview the President of the United States for a job on the U.S. Supreme Court, and she gets on the phone and says, you wouldn't be calling me about secretarial work, would you? Uh, but the great, So she had some fun with it, she liked to tell that story. But the interesting thing is, she, having been unable to get a job in the private sector, she tried the public sector. She went to the local DA and said, I'd like to work for you. And he said, I can't hire you, I don't have any money. And she said, I'll work for free. And then he said, I, I don't even have any space for you. And she said, I will work off of your secretary's desk. And she did. And eventually they hired her. And the interesting thing to me was that she was never bitter about this. You never heard any resentment, not in her private correspondence, not in her letters, nowhere. Her attitude was, hey, public sector ended up being pretty good to me. That just was her approach to life. She just did it. She was somebody who was amazingly free of the normal envy and resentment that the rest of us suffer from.
2: But she didn't forget and I'll just stay with Gibson Dunn for a little bit. We talked to Ted Olson, famous lawyer, who's a partner at Gibson Dunn. And he said that for their 100th anniversary, they invited her, now former Justice uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, to come speak to them. And she said, well, I think I, uh, I'll have to consider it. First, I want to hear all your statistics. How many women partners have you made? How many women work for the firm as lawyers? You know, how have you done and he said, they, he went out and he scurried around, he got all the information, gave it to her, and she said, well, you could do better, but this is pretty good, I'll come. And later she, she enjoyed the dinner and she said, I've never had so much fun telling the story about how they wouldn't even hire her as a legal secretary. So ar- John and she arrive in Phoenix. They are brand new lawyers. John gets a job with the uh, big firm, then big firm, Fenimore Craig, at the penthouse of the bank building. Sandra, once again, no private uh, job, she hangs a shingle with a guy she's met at the bar review course. And the two of them uh, have a a two-person law firm in a strip mall taking anybody who walks in the door. What she also said, without bitterness, was really good training. She tried to help women in other ways. Um, on the court, she always made sure she had two women clerks. She knew that being a Supreme Court clerk was a, the 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 leg up in the legal profession. They would go on to be law professors and judges and you know federal court of appeals judges and top law firms and and they all are. And then back in the legislature now. Going back to Phoenix, she does volunteer work. She is appointed to work in the Attorney General's office. She gets an appointment to the Senate, and then she runs for the Senate, and then she's elected the first female majority leader in any state in the country. So as majority leader, she has a chance to really help women because the Equal Rights Amendment... Has been uh, on the platforms of the Republican and Democratic partner parties, and it's making its way through the states. And um, it comes up in Arizona. She introduces it in in the Senate, and it is. Um, she is a very good vote counter. It is. Uh, Killed in committee. Now the ERA um, has been passing states and then it runs into a roadblock because Phyllis Schaffley and the moral majority get going and they argue that women are going to be drafted and that there are all kinds of ways in which women are, are going to be hurt if the ERA passes. So she lets it die in committee. The activists are furious. But she knows that she shouldn't waste her political uh, energy on a bill that won't pass instead. She does an inventory, and um, with some help of some law students, of all the laws in Arizona that discriminate against women, and they change them all. These are laws about that for, forbid women from working more than eight hours a day, that um, limit their ability to hold credit cards, to own property, And she just gets it done. And we saw her list in her handwriting. So that was her effect. If you can't do it one way, go do it another way, but make sure you get the job done.
3: The the Arizona legislature in 1970 was a uh, rough place. A lot of drinking, a lot of men fooling around, very male-dominated world. And uh, she had to deal with some disagreeable men. Uh, one of them was a guy named Tom Goodwin, who was the House Appropriations Committee Chairman, and to pass a budget, you had to go through Tom Goodwin. Tom Goodwin was a drunk, a drunk by 10 a.m. drunk, a real drunk, and uh, she, she, he, he drove her crazy, and finally one day she called him on his drinking, and he looked at her and he said, if you were a man, I'd punch you in the nose, and she said, if you were a man, you could. Yeah. I like to tell that story because uh, it's... But actually, it's a one-off. She she did stand up to people every once in a while, but more typically, she avoided stupid fights. She had a way of working around things. Sometimes she would just turn on her heels and walk away. And uh, this capacity to not get... The men were emotional, and they were always getting drunk and weepy and difficult. She was the unemotional one. Uh, she was the one who could... Who could handle herself and not let her emotions and her temper get control of her, and she got much more done as a result. They passed a lot of a lot of bills. Now her ability to deal with men was tested years later by Antonin Scalia. Uh, Now, when Scalia first came to the court in the late '80s, she welcomed him. The court was uh, was uh, it was aging; the justices were getting old and a little sleepy. And Scalia was full of energy, intellectual energy, and physical energy. He was robust and fun. And she was glad to have him there. But Scalia was somebody, although he was brilliant, who suffered from the uh, smartest kid-in-the-room syndrome. He just had to let everybody know how smart he was. And in the room we're talking about is the Supreme Court conference room. So he uh, patronized the other justices. He would send out these little... uh, memos to them known as ninograms, correcting their grammar and their thinking. And uh, that was okay with her, but he also condescended to her publicly. He said that her opinion in a famous abortion case, that her, her, her opinion in that case, quote, cannot be taken seriously, which is a very kind of harsh thing to say publicly about another justice. She never, she never let herself take the bait in any kind of public way. She never, in fact, when her clerks, would write, and you know, often clerks help Supreme Court justices draft opinions. They do draft opinions. They would put these zingers in there about Scalia. She would take them out. She refused to get into a public uh, fight with Scalia. She did play tennis with him once. And uh, John, who wanted to keep relations good between them, set this game up, a doubles game. And uh, she was a better, better player than Scalia. She kept drilling him at net. Uh, and when they were over, Scalia said to his partner, I'm never doing that again. Uh, so she had her own way of, of dealing with things. She got along great with most of the judges, she got along fine.
2: When David Souter arrived, uh, he, he's an unusual person from New Hampshire and uh, he, he was a bit of a loner and she worried about him. And the thing she really worried about was he was single. So she was uh, known among her her friends as a matchmaker and So one day she was going to her friend Linda and Bill Webster's for dinner they Bill Webster was the former CIA and FBI director and uh, Linda uh, Sandra called Linda and said Linda. I'm bringing David Souter tonight and And you may wonder why it's because he needs to see how happily married people act so Linda turns to Bill and says, Bill, act happy tonight. <laughs> so, there was another night that she decided a friend of hers who was single um, should go out with David Souter, And she set them up, and he took her to the dinner, and he took her to the theater, and then she called her friend later and said, well, how'd it go? And her friend said, well, I think it went fine, but, but he said to me, I really enjoyed that. Let's do it again next year. So, <laughs> so she gave up.
3: <laughs> she, uh, uh, Justice O'Connor uh, came on the court as, as a, Re- as a Goldwater, Reagan, Goldwater Republican Reagan appointee. Uh, she did move a little bit to uh, the left during the court of her, course of her 25 years on the court. We asked uh, Justice Stevens... Uh, This is a Scalia story. We asked Justice Stevens, do you think that she moved to the left? And he said yes. And we said, you know, really, why? His two word answer was Justice Scalia. Uh, He was kidding, sort of. Uh, Interestingly, she, but whatever her politics were, she made it her business to get along with everybody on the court. And the story that really got me was told to me by Justice Thomas. Justice Thomas, as you'll recall, had very difficult confirmation hearings, the famous Anita Hill charges. And Thomas said that when he got on the court, he was feeling hammered. That was his word. Uh, He said, I felt hammered and lonely. And he was walking back to his chambers after his first conference alone. And she started walking with him. And she said, after a while, she said, "Uh, Clarence, those uh, hearings were very damaging. And he didn't know what to say. Uh, damaging to him personally, yes, damaging to the court, yes, and he didn't say anything, and she didn't say anything, but the next day, she walked with him again, and the day after that, and the day after that, and she started saying, Clarence, you got to come to lunch. Finally, she said, Clarence, you got to come to lunch, and he said, yes, ma'am, and he did, and he said to me, it changed everything for me, Clarence Thomas is actually a very cheerful, warm, funny guy. He's got a big laugh. And he said, when I started going to lunch, I stopped sulking. And I got to know the other justices. They don't talk about cases at these lunches. But she made it her business that every justice come to lunch. Uh, Justice Sotomayor told us that she'd heard that O'Connor, if you weren't coming to lunch, O'Connor would just appear in your chambers until you came to lunch. The court... These justices, you know, they're appointed for life. They don't necessarily get along with each other, and sometimes they really don't get along with each other. When she got on the court, the justices were not getting along with each other. The brethren had just been written. Uh, They weren't sure who the leaker was. That's one reason why they weren't coming to lunch when she first got there. But during her time, partly by making everybody to come to lunch, she made the court get along better. And Justice Thomas said to me, she was the glue. She's the person who kept us together. Uh, that's an important thing in, a, in an institution, in any institution, and even on, even or maybe especially on the on the Supreme Court. She, her own jurisprudence is hard to pin down. She was very practical and pragmatic. She was she was the only the last justice actually to be elected to an office. She cared about the practical consequences of decisions. She didn't really like doctrine. She didn't like theory. She was criticized for this by the, by the law reviews. She cared very much about what the practical impact was. She was also an incrementalist. She didn't believe in big sweeping pronouncements. She believed in inching the law along, case by case, fact by fact, very attentive to unintended consequences, very attentive to things going wrong that you couldn't quite anticipate. And that was frustrating to some of her brethren. But it put her in the middle. Uh, She was the swing vote 330 times in 25 years. That's a lot of power. And after a while, the reporters started referring to it as the O'Connor Court. She knew how to make a majority. Uh, She really did. Uh, Her idea of the court was that it was not the last word. We think of it as the last word. She She thought of it as a court in conversation with the other branches of government, particularly on the difficult issues that law, The law is made slowly, you pay attention to what the public thinks, you listen to Congress, you kick it down to the lower courts, you let the state legislature do its thing, uh, do it slowly and be very responsive to the other branches. As a result, she was the, basically the decisive vote. She made the law on the two toughest issues, affirmative action and abortion, for during her long time on the court. On, on both of those, she was personally conflicted. On abortion, she said in her confirmation hearings, uh, I find abortion personally repugnant for herself. She didn't say what the court would do. At first, she voted against Roe v. Wade, but she changed her mind, and she ended up preserving it. She changed the standard, the the, the original Blackmun standard, which had this complicated scheme of, uh, trimester scheme of, 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 and she she put in a different standard that gave sort of more weight to the states, a little bit more, Uh, but she... Preserved it at a time when the conservatives thought that Roe v. Wade was going away. Same thing on affirmative action. She initially voted against racial preference uh, in some in some lead cases, but over time, she was very practical. And when the, when higher education came up, the Grutter case in Michigan in, in 2002. Uh, a lot of people thought she was going to be the fifth vote to get rid of racial preference. She was not. She was the fifth vote to save it because she looked at the state of California. And in the state of California, there was a referendum where they abolished affirmative action. And as a result, the percentage of African Americans at Berkeley and, and uh, UCLA went down to below 1%. And she said, you know, we can't have that. Uh, and law schools train leaders uh, one out of four U.S. senators is a, is a, is a lawyer, uh, and the top law schools, Michigan Law School, they, they cannot have fewer than one percent African Americans. So, just as a practical matter, she voted to, to continue racial preference. She wants. She doesn't like it. She doesn't like identity politics. She really doesn't like a lot of those things. But she preserved it. She said for at least another twenty-five years. She was attacked for this. Look, if it's unconstitutional. Twenty-five years from now, why isn't it unconstitutional now? But typically. She tried to find the middle way. I think it's highly... They always say, she always said, well, we don't read the polls. Well, abortion, a third of the country is completely against abortion. A third of the country is completely for abortion. A third of the country is for abortion under some circumstances. That's where Justice O'Connor was. And that's why Roe v. Wade is still the law of the land.
2: She was... um, All the justices have four clerks. Each of them has four clerks a year. And she... um, she was very close to her clerks. There, they remain. So there are about 108 of them, and as I said, we talked to 94 of them about some fun stories about clerking for her. She was uh, expected them to be exercise. She expected them to go on outings. She expected them to live a full life. She expected them to have the memos ready in the morning, and she expected them to. Work and they did pretty well seven days a week for the year that they were uh, clerking. She had she wasn't easy with the praise. So uh, one year one of them uh, put a Xerox of her hand on the wall, and uh, it said, "If you want a pat on the back, lean here." And she did take one clerk over and leaned him against the pat on the back, and he he was thrilled. Uh, one one of her male clerks was eating an ice cream cone. Saw her coming, knew he wasn't supposed to be eating the ice cream cone. Sticks it in the drawer, so she um, she would take the clerks on an outing. They might have a, be overwhelmed by work, and she'd say, "The cherry blossoms have never looked more beautiful. You're coming with me," and off they went down to the to the mall to see how gorgeous the cherry blossoms were. She knew it was going to stay with them for the rest of their lives. She uh, required her female clerks to go to an aerobics class with her in the morning. She wanted those male clerks to be um, very well. And another thing that she did, uh, importantly, was model what a, a great marriage looked like.
3: She had a great marriage, um, uh, she and John O'Connor. Uh, this is, you know, it wasn't easy for him in Phoenix He was the big man, he was a a managing partner of the big law firm, Uh, he was head of the Brodery, he was head of a couple of hospitals, he was very politically active, but in Washington, not so much. Uh, He did join a firm there, but it didn't work out. He had to leave and go to another firm, and she understood that he was making a big sacrifice, and so one way she dealt with it was they went out a lot. She was the most social justice in history, I know that's a low bar, but 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 they went out all the time, and she did that partly because she liked to dance and have fun. But she did it for him. And at dinner parties, she would be quiet. She let him be the lion. He liked to tell funny stories, and she let him show off because she knew that was good for his ego. And uh, and he was he was grateful. He felt a little lost in, in Washington, but she let him have his have his have his have his moment. Uh, They cared for each other and this was especially relevant.
2: When he got Alzheimer's, um, you probably know that uh, he got Alzheimer's while she was still on the court. He was diagnosed in 2000. She didn't leave the court until 2005 to take care of him. This meant that he was, uh, she was looking after him for those five years while she was a full-time justice And it got to the point where she would bring him to her chambers and he would be there reading the newspaper, but not turning the page. He he really depended on her and she didn't really want someone else to look after him. But it got too hard and finally, uh, she steps down from the court to take care of him. They move to Phoenix and within six months, he doesn't recognize her. He develops what's called a mistaken attachment to another woman who has Alzheimer's. And uh, this is, uh, to me, extraordinary. He, he, Sandra comes to visit him. He's sitting there holding the other woman's hand and Sandra comes and holds his other hand. Um, he, at one mo- moment, introduced the other woman to Sandra as his wife. So uh, this was heartbreaking to her, but she told the press when they found out about it that she was happy for him, he'd been depressed, and now he wasn't.
3: So as you know, she herself has Alzheimer's. Uh, uh, She dreaded it. Um, Symptoms showed up in about 2012, and uh, she's now in 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 an assisted uh, care facility. But before that happened, she wanted to make the—she retired— to care for John. She said that. I'm, I'm, uh, he sacrificed for me, I'm, I'm going to sacrifice for him. She t- cared for him. But then she started a whole second career uh, worrying about civics. She felt, and correctly so, that most kids know nothing about civics. And she started this organization called iCivics, uh, video games for middle schoolers. Six million kids a year take a, do an uh, iCivics uh, video game. She couldn't even do her own email, but she was smart enough to know that the way you reach kids is through, through video games. And so, and she said amazingly, this is her, her most, not being on the Supreme Court, but I civics was her most lasting achievement. And her friends, oh, come on, you can't be serious. But she meant it, because she, her one great faith, she was religious, but her really her great faith was civic religion. She believed in, in civility, and civics, and in her country. Uh, and the separation of powers, those things were, were profound to her. And they informed her jurisprudence, and they informed her life, how lucky we were that she was the first. Thank you.